Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, as it's Monday, joining us is Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses. He's also a senior visiting fellow at the Center for a New American Security. He's part of CNA's Crack Russia team and one of the world's leading experts on the Russian military and its unmanned systems. Sam, welcome back. I uh, hope you had a great weekend. Uh, and you are joining us from a very, very tenuous uh, internet link. Uh, so if it's a little more spotty than usual, uh, we'll chalk it up to the weather. No problem. Good to be back, Vago. Uh, always a pleasure. Before we get started, uh, today's program is brought to you by HII. HII is the designer and operator of the U.S. Navy's live virtual constructive training enterprise, the largest LVC enterprise in the U.S. Department of Defense, HII delivering hard stuff done right. Uh, Sam, uh, since last uh, we spoke, there's obviously an enormous amount of activity. Uh, Russia is uh, attacking, uh, again, Ukrainian grain and grain storage facilities, threatening ships uh, entering uh, or leaving uh, Ukrainian waters. Um, meanwhile, Vladimir Zelensky, while expressing gratitude for Western help, is also noting that the nation's counteroffensive has uh, suffered from the so slow pace uh, of Western arms uh, deliveries. Then we've got the Wagner Group in Belarus uh, training the Belarusian army uh, and Vladimir Putin cracking down on ultra-nationalist commentator Igor Gurkin, which was seen as significant, that coming on the heels of some 35 Russian general officers that were either detained, fired, uh, or uh, arrested. But walk us through, especially what the Wagner and the Gherkin, right, all of this means right now in terms of where we are in the war and Putin's hold on power. Well, the overarching theme here is Putin trying to reassert his power, reassert the control after his system was briefly challenged in June by Prigozhin insurrection. And so what he's trying to do and trying to show to the population, to his country, to the world, that he's still in charge and that there is no challenge. That's why Wagner Group is actually in Belarus, not in Russia. They're training Belarusian military in the latest tactics they've picked up in Ukraine. It is a valuable set of skills, given the intensity of the warfare and uh, different types of weapons and systems used there. And so Lukashenko, the president of Belarus and a close Putin ally, uh, is benefiting from Wagner's recent experience in strengthening his military, especially against a potential internal challenge to his rule. The arrest of Igor Gherkin is a very interesting case because unlike other volunteer organizations that we discussed in previous weeks and months, organizations that supply a lot of uh, technologies, weapons, systems, especially UAVs to the front, Igor Gherkin was mostly a commentator. To remind our listeners, he was a um, one of the key figures in the 2014-2015 war in the Donbass, uh, when uh, the Donbass insurrectionists backed by Russia challenged uh, Ukrainian government. And so briefly, I Igor Gherkin served as a, um, as a military official in, in the Donbass region. He basically styled himself as a big patriot. He wanted to reestablish the Novorossiya, the regions, uh, the eastern and the southern regions of uh, Ukraine that should have joined Russia, according to him. Uh, his goal was not realized, and uh, his uh, criticism of the Russian government's inability to do so, uh, his criticism of the military and all the other uh, issues that prevented him from basically reestablishing his uh, nationalist dream, all of that criticism lasted from that time and well into 
this year and basically up to his arrest. He maintained a very active Telegram channel where he, where he continuously criticized the Russian government, the Ministry of Defense, and others for failing to achieve their goals in Ukraine early on last year. And of course, uh, tying it to the um, losses and uh, problems he thinks the Russian military and the government has experienced back in 2014, 2015. He also established a um, sort of a political organization, the Union of Angry Nationalists, comprised of uh, some of the current nationalist figures as well as the military. Um, this wasn't a political party per se, but um, in the uh, I, I guess in the opinion of the MOD, the, mini- uh, the military and the government, uh, they were really annoying uh, to uh, the Russian government and uh, everyone in the Kremlin. And so finally, they've had enough and they arrested him along, of course, as you mentioned, along with a sweep of uh, lots of military officers who were openly critical of the MOD's failures, detriments, problems and issues. Again, what this means is that Russian president and the Kremlin are trying to re- reassert control. They're trying to control the narrative and they're now getting rid of anybody who publicly opposes them and publicly criticizes what they do or don't do in Ukraine. Um, and it, but it's interesting that Prigozhin still being critical, uh, right? So school teachers are getting uh, arrested or regular Russian civilians who say anything about the war end up uh, getting imprisoned. And yet here's this guy who killed you know, more than 30 uh, or, you know, his forces killed more than 30 Russian troops, nearly 40, uh, was shooting down multiple helicopters and the like. Gherkin ends up getting detained. Surovikin hasn't been seen, but Prigozhin is still up and running, which I think is kind of interesting. Well, that's how the Russian system operates. Again, a lot of people ask questions, same type of questions that you just did about Gherkin. He was basically a loudmouth. He was annoying to the Kremlin. And yet he was arrested. Meanwhile, someone who actually led an armed insurrection against the government and uh, the senior officers in charge of that insurrection as well were given clemency and, and they pardoned. So they are free while someone who very publicly criticizes the government is not. So this is one of the uh, intricacies of the Russian system. We're not supposed to understand it, I guess, fully, but we are <laughs> we are supposed to. Uh, we are supposed to observe those lessons and, uh, I guess, try to figure out what can happen next. This definitely pours cold water on a lot of open critique of what the Ministry of Defense and the military are doing in Ukraine in general. When we had these podcasts last year, I remember saying to you how some of the volunteer organizations that supply technologies and equipment to the front were, in fact, critical of some of the issues experienced by the military. That criticism has been tapered off significantly. In fact, a lot of these organizations now are not really saying anything bad about the military. They're just saying how good their products are and how much they can right. help the Russian military against Ukraine. So gone is the real sort of visceral, almost objective criticism of some of the Russian military's failures. It still exists and it still pops up occasionally on some Telegram channels, but I think people are trying to be a lot more careful now, lest uh, their voice is completely taken away. Uh, what's going to happen to Gherkin? He may be jailed. He may be let go. There may be a show trial of sorts, or maybe, uh, again, he will just be let out because the system, again, has to show that it's in control. Right. The Kremlin is in control. Russian president is in control. And the system can do whatever it wants with anybody who tries to criticize it way too much. 
Um, let me uh, take you uh, to uh, war uh, progress. Secretary of State Antony Blinken told CNN uh, yesterday that Ukraine has regained 50% of the territory that Russia initially uh, seized, but winning back more territory was, was going to be hard going. Um, in terms of territory, how much territory has been clawed back? And where are we now in the fight, because the Russians are obviously working hard, right? I mean, the Shahed factory isn't even inaugurated yet and are trying to deplete as quickly as possible um, uh, Ukraine's air and missile uh, defenses uh, that are being breached, uh, right? There are, there are frequent attacks uh, and they're taking casualties every day. What does Blinken mean when 50% of the territory has been regained and where does the fight stand at the moment? Well, he's discussing some of the tactical successes that Ukraine has had around uh, some of the more hard-fought areas in Ukraine, like the Bakhmut region and uh, other locations. Uh, all, overall, of course, Ukrainian progress is slow because of the Russian military's defenses, Russian military's ability to dig in and to use a combination of tactics and weapons, including minefields, to blunt some of the Ukrainian advances. Uh, but... Um, at the same time, Ukraine isn't necessarily um, just uh, using ground-based forces to stress Russian defenses. It has launched, uh, apparently overnight, there was an attack, another attack on the Crimea with the UAVs that apparently Russian military has neutralized. There was also apparently another attack on Moscow with two UAVs that were able to penetrate uh, Russian air defenses. There was no significant damage from that attack, but again, it demonstrated that Ukraine has the ability to reach far into Russia if it needs to. This was always going to be sort of a, um, a hard slog, uh, as we discussed early on. Uh, the enemy that digs in uh, is favored in this type of frontal assaults that Ukraine is trying to conduct. And the Russian military has learned hard lessons from past year and from early on this year as well that it's applying here. So it is trying to be judicial and it is trying to um, basically um, try and blunt Ukrainian advance where it can. And that is why a Ukrainian president uh, was frustrated uh, simply because uh, uh, different types of weapons like cluster munitions would have been helpful in clearing the minefields and in um, extracting uh, significant damage from the Russian military. But as some of the uh, people who've observed this conflict have remarked, this type of advance doesn't just depend on one or two or several types of weapons. It's a combination of uh, tactics, uh, it's a combination of experience, and it's a combination of weapons. And so again, right now, at this point in the war, uh, the type of conflict and combat happening right now is favoring the defense, especially if the defense had time to dig in and establish a number of fortifications which are giving Ukrainians a lot of trouble. This may not be the case later on, and uh, right now, we are basically observing Ukraine trying to break through some of the hardened Russian defenses that have been established along the entire front. Um, let me uh, quickly uh, get an update from you on where we stand on the Shahed facility. Obviously, uh, Russia is using these Iranian-made drones to great effect. It's, you know, entire, uh, it is a war economy now, right? So, I mean, its factories are producing weapons 24-7. Um, in terms of uh, assault weapons and, uh, uh, you know, long range strike uh, systems and the like. What's the status of the Shahed facility? Because Russia will be will have more access to even more weapons when that uh, plant comes online outside Moscow. The plan is for the Russian factory in Yelabaga to manufacture up to six 
thousand of these drones, at least according to public sources that came to light earlier. The factory is under construction. There's a Russian subcontractor who's been identified by uh, by public sleuths and open source intelligence as a uh, company that will be assembling these drones. And uh, there are also jobs advertised in that region uh, for uh, essentially to work in this factory. So the plans are afoot and uh, definitely Russia wants to uh, basically have this factory working as of yesterday. So this is going to be a significant project to watch. Um, uh, initially, uh, these drones will be assembled from Iranian kits, but ultimately uh, Russians will basically uh, start manufacturing a russified version of the Shahed with domestic components and some improvements that also came to light earlier. Sam, uh, this is, you know, as we've discussed since the start of the conflict, very much an unmanned uh, war uh, or a war of unmanned uh, systems. The Ukrainians uh, just did, uh, as you mentioned, uh, attempted a strike on Moscow that was uh, intercepted. What's the latest in uh, sort of the unmanned war? Because every week there is more uh, news uh, on, on where we stand in terms of capabilities and counter capabilities? I think the most important news right now is mass. Uh, what's happening right now is that previously a lot of Russian volunteer technology efforts were manufacturing uh, FPV drones and quadcopters basically on a relatively small scale, so maybe several hundred a month, which of course made a difference still, but uh, probably not to the point where such drones are making a difference for the Ukrainian side. What, what we're witnessing now are several of these self-initiated efforts, especially those which are initiated by actual design bureaus and military factories are stepping up to manufacture not just hundreds of drones per month, but thousands. And so thousands of FPV drones arriving in the Russian forces can actually have a significant tactical effect. These are, of course, fast, light, um, uh, racing drones that can carry a significant uh, munition. And the cost-wise, right, a, a FPV drone that can cost four, five hundred, six hundred dollars can actually damage or destroy a tank or an armored vehicle that costs in the many hundreds of thousands and maybe even millions of dollars. And so thousands of these FPV drones eventually arriving in the Russian forces can have a significant effect at the tactical level where these drones can actually um, affect the battle space up to uh, five, seven, eight miles out. Uh, let me ask you uh, one, uh, one last uh, quick question. Um, you know, the Russians, there's a lot of debate about whether or not a maritime task force should be started and, you know, convoy escorts and what have you. The Russians have said they will sink any uh, ship uh, coming in and out of Ukrainian waters. But the Black Sea is international waters, even if Russia regards it as its own lake. And, and throughout the Cold War, the United States operated uh, its ships uh, there and aircraft to uh, for, in freedom of navigation exercises. There's a 12-mile limit. Do we know how the Russians would respond? Because the Russian response is always much more bluster than reality. How would they respond if there was an international mission, a United Nations mission, or you know, an international mission to escort Ukrainian shipping through the Black Sea carrying grain? Well, it's not clear at this point, and this is certainly something we have to watch and pay attention to. One of the plans is to have uh, these ships uh, getting escorted in uh, the uh, territorial waters of the countries that border uh, the Black Sea as well. But again, it's not clear exactly how Russia will respond, as you indicated. Some of it was bluster. But Russians are serious. They've held several maritime trials and drills where their uh, naval vessels have simulated an attack on um, large ships in the Black Sea. 
Uh, again, not clear whether uh, that will actually be the case, but this is something we have to watch. Sam, always a pleasure. Uh, thanks very much. Hope you have a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Fargo. And a word from our sponsors, Bell sponsors our daily coverage, HII sponsors our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And as this is Monday, joining us now is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, I uh, hope you guys had a great weekend and thanks very much for joining us. We did. We had a wonderful weekend. Uh, indeed. And here we are back in battery, as the saying goes. Um, as we discussed on uh, Friday's show, the National Defense Authorization Act is, uh, you know, obviously has made it through the House, is now making its way through the uh, Senate. Eventually, we're going to conference wherever it is that we are. Walk us through what the interesting takeaways have been uh, for you. We heard from Michael Herson last week. Give us your sense on what it is that jumped out at you. Well, look. Vago, you know, we're, we're obviously still in the sausage making um, point. You know, I, I'm going to say one interesting point because I wrote about it. You know, you have two different operations and maintenance numbers in the House version of the NDAA and the Senate Armed Services version of the NDAA for the O&M request in FY24. I have not gotten an answer to why those discrepancies exist. Um, but it's interesting in its own right because it, it complicates the comparisons. You know, it, it's not the, the markups are, are obviously going to be different. But when you talk about growth off of the request, you have these two different numbers. And, um, you know, O&M in, in the House version is like $290 billion. In the Senate version, it's $293 billion. And, and these should stack up. Um, you know, I put in some queries and haven't heard back yet, but I, I just want to put that on the table because <clears throat> I know the Senate's gotten some uh, queries about it, but as I said, I, I haven't gotten to the bottom of what what's uh, come out of it. You know, I, I always feel with these, this is a process that we're going through. And, you know, where it really starts to get interesting is, um, I get it. You have to be mindful of what's happening during the markups, what amendments make it, what don't make it. You know, I think Michael said it very well last week that the 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 Senate process seems more orderly and more bipartisan than what we've seen come out of the House. You know, my own view, my own personal view is, look, we'll probably get to a defense um, FY24 National Authorization Act by the end of the year. Uh, just because this is must-pass legislation. And, you know, at the end of the day, it may be like the Fiscal Responsibility Act, where a lot of the most extreme um, positioning got got stripped out. Because at the end of the day, you know, having not having authorization for military pay is just, just a no-go. So um, the posturing, the messaging, you know, all the provisions that got put into this uh, by the House, um, it's going to be a fight and it's not going to be pretty by any stretch of the imagination, but um, I think that'll get done. Appropriations is frankly a tougher call. You know, my base case, and I think this is probably consensus is, you know, you'll see something pretty close to the administration's request with some additional money for Ukraine. Um, I, I'm skeptical, you know, Michael mentioned the, um, the, the move by Senator Wicker to add 
25 billion in um, in the markup on the, uh, the the National Defense Authorization Act, you know, and that that fight's going to play through to appropriations, I'm sure. But in the kind of environment we're in, you know, is it realistic to expect that the House and the Senate are going to agree to that magnitude of, of increase? My gut is no. My gut is still it will have um, a supplemental spending package for Ukraine because I just think, you know, it's going to dawn on the majority of members of Congress what the implications are if the U.S. doesn't provide Ukraine with additional military aid and, and what happens if Ukraine is defeated by Russia and what China takes away from that. I mean, it's it's a pretty easy string to pull through uh, as much as there's going to be a, a very loud and vocal opposition, uh, but a very small group of, of people opposed to this. So, um, uh, you know, but but the timing on appropriations, you know, how this all plays out, you know, the way I kind of bound it is, the most, if I have that most probable case, you know, I, I still think there's the risk that we do get into a full year CR, in which case the the DOD budget would be at 99% of the base uh, budget for FY23. And, you know, I think the way the mechanics of that would work, it, it it's hard to cut military personnel. Um you know, you'd probably still see the DOD try and, and um, shield readiness <clears throat> through the operations and maintenance accounts. So that means the bulk of that cut is going to fall in the investment accounts. And, and when it starts to dawn on some of the people who are most aggressively pushing for um, for defense, you know, what does that mean to the defense programs in their states and districts? Um you know that that also might might preclude uh, you know the defense budget kind of tumbling over that that cliff. Right. Um, let me ask you one uh, question about moving uh, faster, right? I mean, if you talk to the department, they will maintain that they're moving as fast as they can uh, to satisfy this weapons demand, and we have many billions of dollars of stuff under contract, but it doesn't start showing up until next year. So we might not actually be moving as fast as we need to be moving. Ukraine is getting cluster munitions because we're running out of 155 artillery shells, right? Even though that's what the Ukrainians asked for. We're running out of air, and air defense missiles, right? I mean, there aren't that many Patriot weapons we have, and these guys are using Patriot weapons at scale. In my view, we should be giving them more batteries and more weapons. The question is, what will it take, Byron, to actually like spur the kind of three shifts a day, rapid uh, production, like we mean it, because it seems like we're not moving that fast, actually. We think we're moving really at light speed, and we may be doing some things a lot faster than we were doing them, but maybe not as fast as the moment is calling for. Well, that's, I mean, come on, you you certainly can move at, at warp speed. You know, we saw that, I mean, these are simpler products, but but think about ventilators during the pandemic. Um, you know, you basically, uh, you have to simplify some of your designs. I mean, that's what happened in World War II, right? You know, you had right. very complex designs. I, the, the Liberator bomber comes to mind where Ford, got a look at these and and rejiggered a lot of the the design itself i mean the plane the fundamental plane didn't change but the way it was built and and some of the parts that went into it definitely changed and you know the end result was will run that we're not gonna we're not gonna go down that same path here but but come on you know it's insane to me that 
you're you're you know to have Raytheon hire back uh, retired people to build you know what are fairly basic weapons um something's wrong there and you know yes we have low unemployment in in the industry in in the United States I think we're still at 3.6 or 3.7 percent you know you saw Dassault state this last week the same thing's going on in Europe it's like you know Dassault can increase production but their entire supply network can't um are there ways to get you know, non-defense firms to build, um, you know, defense products. Yeah, you know, the the economy is starting to show a little bit of softness in the United States. And if you incentivize people, sure, uh, someone, will, someone will take that. You know, it, it's not going to be the stable, predictable uh, run rate that everybody looks for in the defense sector, but someone can make money in, in two, two years or a year and a half by uh, rapidly scaling and building and then, you know, saying, thank you very much. I mean, again, it's, it's not a good analogy. I, I don't want to equate concrete and asphalt and rebar to building a complex weapon system, but look at how fast, uh, you know, the, the portion of I-95 that was damaged by a tanker fire outside of Philadelphia right. was repaired. So if you put your mind to it, you can do it, but there it's not happening. So um, it's, it's, it can be done. I absolutely believe it can be done. We've had a, a series, uh, and I haven't uh, gotten as much commentary from you on this, uh, whether it's on uh, innovation, Silicon Valley Defense Group had something uh, about that. And then obviously the AI uh, uh, commission gave its sort of latest update on where we stand on AI uh, and the like. And we have a number of other projects that are outgoing, ongoing. We heard from former Defense Secretary uh, Dr. Mark Esper and uh, Debbie Lee James, the former Air Force Secretary on the Atlantic Council Initiative. They're leading. The put put make make sense of all of these kind of papers and reports that have come out uh, over the last uh, couple of weeks because we're having so much of them that it's sometimes not clear to me that people maybe are paying as much attention to this stuff as they should be. Look, the bottom line. And I think the Silicon Valley Defense Group called this out. There's been a lot of capital raised uh, that's gone into new technology. 8.6 billion just on their end, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, and they, that's a pretty, you know, I mean, that includes companies like SpaceX. But, but you know, the point is, there's a window that opened um, and there's a window that could close here. And if, you know, I, I think, you know, the call that's going out is it's one thing to raise the money for this sector, you know, but people who, who invest in these companies are going to expect a return on that capital. Now that doesn't mean the department of defense should give contracts willy nilly to people who've raised money. I mean, come on, you still have to have good products and, and services and they have to be competitive. Um, you know, you can't get into the kind of predatory pricing behavior that you've seen in other parts of the tech sector. Um, but I, I feel strongly that, uh, you know, what DOD has to demonstrate in the FY25 um, budget that's being worked up in the building is, is there visible lanes for some of these companies to, to really grow into their valuations, and maybe above their valuations. And if you, if you don't show that in FY25, the department really has to kind of look at itself and Congress, I think also has to look at itself and say, well, you know, where's all this capital? It's, it's going to winnow away. It's, it's, you're, you're just not going to see that kind of influx again. Um, 
maybe maybe for a number of years and, until something really changes. And um, you know that may be fine for the companies that could be threatened by new entrants, new technology. But you know, is that really in the best interest of national security? And uh, that's that's my takeaway from all these reports. Is until you really start creating lanes. Uh, for some of these guys to to at least compete in, um, you're you're not going to see you know the, this this largesse of private capital will will wither away. Uh, in in uh, indeed, and it's uh, certainly an interesting time. Although I find that you know folks will say it's hard to get capital. If if you've got the the era of dumb capital is over, right? Where people yeah. are throwing stupid money and stupid ideas. Uh, under, you know, I'm basically sort of good slide presentations uh, and slick marketing. Um, let's, uh, I, I want to get to the week ahead uh, in, in a moment, but, you know, give us your sense on Lockheed Martin earnings. We heard from Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities yesterday. We know we discussed that at length on the show, as well as uh, Sash Tusa discussed, you know, Dassault, Saab, Babcock, uh, and Talos earnings. From your standpoint, what were kind of the key elements of what we saw from Lockheed and what we should be expecting from the group, right? Because this is a gigantic <laughs> earnings week uh, this yeah, week. Yeah, well, well, I think, Fago, it's kind of, you know, what we've just ta- been talking about. You know, again, I it's hard to always say, you know, what what's really driving stock prices. Uh, you know, Lockheed stock fell on what I thought was a pretty decent earnings report. You know, I and uh, but I think you know one of the takeaways. Well, there are two takeaways. People remain obsessed on the F thirty five, but they don't necessarily consider. You know, and some of this I think is also Lockheed Martin's messaging. You know, they didn't mention the F sixteen during the during the report. I thought there have been some interesting things going on with the F sixteen program. Um, you know, there are other opportunities out there. Uh, you know, above and beyond just F-35. You know, today uh, there's news Australia's just ordered another 20 C-130 Hercs. So, um, you know, it it becomes a a kind of single point of identification for that company, which is, or a word association game. If I say Lockheed Martin, you'd say F-35, when there's a hell of a lot more at that company than F-35. But I do think there's also this impatience, um, and this may be, the lack of sophistication or knowledge on in the investment community about, oh, budgets are going up. Well, why why is it Lockheed growing faster than what they've guided to? Um, you know, and they're pretty clear, like this is, even though they raised their sales guidance this year, you know, it was kind of in the space sector. Where did that come from? You know, I think people were hoping more on some of the things that they, you know, they all see, which is to your point, you know, the munitions, precision guided weapons, growth, um, and you know, some of the export wins uh, that 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 uh, Lockheed Martin has has racked up here. But um, it'll take time. Um, but again, it kind of gets back to their capacity to address higher demand, and and management kind of came out and said that it's like the demand is there, but we don't have the supply. So you're kind of back to that that question you just asked me you know earlier in the program which is what's going to change and um you know I, I, if lockheed wanted to step on the gas i absolutely believe they could but they're you know i i suppose the risk that they and other defense contractors are grappling with is well, we don't have the contracts yet you know what's the risk that we right. step 
Goldman Gas, and then in 2024, you know, there's some dramatic development in the Russia-Ukraine war, and all this demand goes away. You know, so uh, yeah, the demand the demand doesn't go away. We are low on inventory. Our allies are low on inventory. I mean, that to me is hundred percent just is is a spurious claim. The next couple of years are going to be very robust because we're getting ready, obviously, for China as well. We've yeah. got about 30 seconds. Talk to us about the week ahead and what the audience ought to be paying attention to, even if folks have one eye on the beach. Uh, well, like, obviously, what's going on in Congress, uh, Association of U.S. Army holds their Warfighter Summit, July 26th, 27th. Um, there is a defense show in Turkey called IDEF <clears throat> that might be interesting. Um, there's the U.S.-Australia uh, ministerial consultations are taking place July 25th in, in Brisbane. So whatever you know, news comes out of AUKUS should be interesting. Taiwan is holding its annual live fire military drills this week. Um, I don't think that'll really create anything dramatic with China, but something I keep an eye on. And then, you know, to your point, we just have a, a slew of earnings reports, uh, mainly from the U.S. majors, but also there's still a couple of European co companies in there, too. Aaron, always a pleasure. Thanks so very much for uh, joining me. Have a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. we Will do, Vago. Thank you.